0: Benjamin Franklin, I'm from Maine, so let me start out with a good American quote, all right? Ben Franklin said this, maybe, beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy, right? I'm like, oh, that's a great quote. Then as I researched it, I don't think he actually said it, but that's okay. It sounds pretty good, so we'll put it up there with the maybe. And the reason why I want to start out with that is because, yes, while beer is wonderful, uh, it's not necessarily, you know, the deepest truth, Right? It doesn't necessarily mean that, that God loves us, although it's good. Here's another truth. God loves us. It's Valentine's Day, right? So we want to get our, our warm feelies on. Here we go. God loves us, so he sent us a letter on structure. Right? Imagine that. Valentine's Day, it's like, ooh, I get a little letter from Jess. I'm opening it up. And it's like new arrangement of the house. Like, oh baby, I feel so loved when you tell me where the couch is gonna go, right? But this is kind of what the letter of Titus is. And, and I, I wanted to say, it's kind of a boring letter, but it's not a boring letter because it is from God and it is about his, how his church is supposed to be structured. Uh, Matthew 16, 18, I'm going to read actual words in the Bible, not a screen. Uh, Matthew 16, 18, uh, book in the New Testament uh, says says this Jesus says this he says I tell you you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it so when we get into a letter like we're going to get into this morning. And over the next, I don't know, seven or eight weeks, we're gonna be in this little letter to Titus. We need to keep this at the forefront, that the church is not ours. We don't get to come into the church with our agenda. I think that the building should be like this. I think that the leadership should be like this. I think that the preacher should be this tall or this short. I think it should be this like, that's really nice. We come in with all our preferences, but at the end of the day, we have to submit to what God wants because Jesus said it's him that's building his church. It's not our church. We might be a part of it and we're encouraged to be a part of it and be members of his church, but it's his church. And so we need to keep being reminded of that, especially as we see things that we're like, I don't know if I agree with it. Man, woman, guys, people, trying to include everyone here. If you read the Bible, you're gonna see things every day that you disagree with. That's part of being a disciple of Jesus. It's not the other way around, that Jesus is showing up with you in the morning being like, oh, wise one, what would you like for me to change today? It's the opposite. It's that we show up with him and we say, I'm coming to you with all of these weird things in my life. What do you wanna do? How do you wanna change me? The church is his. This letter about structure is his. And you are probably gonna hear things over the course of this series that you're like, I don't agree with it. And I say, good, good. I think that's actually a good thing because you need to wrestle that out with the spirit of God. Is this actually what you have for your church? I think at the end of the day, we can even have things that we're like, God, I don't like it this way, but I'm going to submit to you because this is how you have structured your church. There are lots of things. People say, well, how can you believe that? I'm like, you didn't ask me if I liked it because there are a lot of things that I believe that if I were God, maybe I wouldn't put them that way, and that's why I'm not God. You should be so thankful that I am not the Lord. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna be working through this, this letter, uh, this book, over the next few weeks. It's a very short, clear, punchy letter from a guy named Paul to a guy named Titus, and we'll talk about that in just a second, who they are. The background, though, is that it was written probably in 61 to 63 AD, so the church is just beginning to form, like this is really exciting. So when Doug and Angie visit and we talk about their house church, it's really exciting because it's it's in this embryonic form. It hasn't fully started yet. This is when the church was just developing. So, Paul, we're gonna hear about Paul all throughout this series. Here's who Paul is: Paul was a Jewish man, he had a great Jewish CV that he could put forward. He was did all the right things, didn't do the really bad things. And he was so Jewish that when uh, Jesus came and said, actually, I'm the Messiah, and he died and, and rose again and then ascended into heaven, Paul, whose name was Saul at that point, decided he wanted to be the one that snuffed out the church. So he got letters from the officials to go and kill Christians. That's what he did. And then one day, Jesus, in this UFC style, like comes out of heaven, blinds him, and then tells him, go in this place, and then meets him through this other disciple, and then rearranges Saul, now Paul's, entire life. And he turns from being a Christian killer to a church planter. In fact, when he first went and told the apostles, hey, I'm here, Jesus changed me, they were fearful that, they were, that he was gonna kill them. Because they're like, when you left, you left a Christian killer, now you're a church planter? We don't get it. Anyway, this is, this is Paul. Titus, he's the second guy. Titus was probably a convert of Paul's ministry. Paul probably talked to Titus about who Jesus was. Titus wasn't Jewish, he was a Gentile. And those were the two categories. In a Jewish mind, you're either a Jew or a Gentile. Gentile means non-Jew. So this was Titus. Titus was a guy who seemed to be good under pressure. Titus was Paul's right-hand man for when things happened that Paul couldn't be there to deal with it, or maybe Paul didn't actually even wanna be the one to deal with it. He knew Titus was so good that he could go into conflict and see a lot of good things happen out of it. So Corinth, Corinth was a difficult situation. Paul wrote a couple letters that we have Uh, In our Bibles, two of them we don't have, but we know that they were both harsh, very hard to receive. He sends Titus in to make it all good. Paul wanted Titus to go into some of the most dangerous, hard situations because he trusted Titus to be on mission. And so this is a letter from Paul to Titus as he left Titus on the island of Crete. Now Crete, Crete is a little island, about 250 kilometers by 12 to 56 so it doesn't stay like this it just gets wider and wider so 250 kilometers by 12 up to 56 kilometers and there was a church there there was a church that that was there and paul heard of this and paul made a visit to crete at one point after he knew that there was a church there but how is there a church in crete and you might not even be asking this question i'm asking it for you how was there a church in crete how did that start Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, this took place. Jews and proselytes, Cretans, so Crete, and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What happened was that there were a group of Galileans from a specific part of of Israel. They were kind of like the backwoods people of, of Israel. And all of a sudden, it's like they start speaking like they've all been taking Rosetta Stone classes. And they're all speaking in all these different languages because everyone was gathered up in the city for the day of Pentecost, which is kind of like Thanksgiving. So everyone gets together for Thanksgiving. It's a great big celebration. Loud noise happens in the city. These 120 Galilean backwoods people are together who believe in Jesus. And the spirit of God comes upon them in such a way that they get these tongues of fire. And... These tongues of fire, they're able to speak in new languages and they leave the house and they start talking to people about who Jesus is in their mother tongue. It's a crazy thing. And these people become followers of Jesus on that day, about 3,000 of them, and then they leave and they go home. So most likely what happens is that these Cretans heard the gospel, they believed in Jesus, they were baptized, and then they went back to their home in Crete. And so who started this church? We have no idea. We have no idea. And that's actually a really good thing. Because some of you are like, I'm not in full-time ministry. I don't have a pastor or elder title. I don't lead anything significant. And you know what? It was the insignificant people that we don't know their names who became significant to God and were sent back into their homeland to start something that had never been started before. You matter to God. You matter to God. God will use you in ways that you have no idea. This is what he does with us as people. It's huge. And then this gospel that starts in Crete just begins to spread all throughout the island. And so Paul, being a good friend, leaves his buddy Titus as he's going on on this trip. He leaves him in, in Crete for two things. Titus chapter one, verse five. This is why I left you in Crete so you may put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And I just love that first part. There's so many things that I don't like doing, and I want to just leave people there to put them in order. So I'm very inspired by, by Paul's message. So we have kids, right? It's like, clean your room, right? I'm going to leave you in your room so you can put what remains in order. But this is actually a real apostolic thing, that Paul doesn't need to do everything. And that's a good thing. A pastor is not supposed to do everything. A pastor is supposed to equip the church to be able to do the work of ministry. So this is actually what Paul is doing. So the two things Paul does or has Titus do is put things in order. And that's what we're gonna spend the rest of the book looking at. And the second thing is to appoint elders, plural, appoint elders in every town. Now, elder doesn't mean old person. Or, sorry, more well-seasoned, well-aged. I don't know the right way to say it. I always get it wrong. So elder doesn't mean old person. Going back to the first thing, probably the wrong thing. Here's what it means. Elder is a pastor, is an overseer, is a shepherd, is a my personal favorite bishop, right? When you read these words in the New Testament, they are all saying the same thing. Now, it might be focusing on a specific aspect of the role, but they're the same thing. And so when you read elder, shepherd, bishop, pastor, that's what they're going for. So Paul felt like it was so important that Titus heard this early on in the letter. You need to put in place these type of leaders. So why? Why this strong focus on making sure that elders are put in every town? And there are four reasons. Breaking the mold this morning. You like three-point sermons, I'm going four. I felt rebellious this week, so four. This is how preachers rebel. First point, why was, why was there such a strong need to appoint elders? Because there were false teachers that were there. There were false teachers. Let me read to you Titus 1, 9 to 11. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. This is referring to the elders so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Circumcision parties don't sound very fun, do they? If you ever invite me to one? I will never come, Right? It's just one of those things. And Paul is telling Titus that it's important because these types of circumcision parties aren't fun and they aren't actually what God has for his people. Now, it wasn't like a real circumcision party. It was a group. I hope you picked up on that. It was a group of people that were pushing this as like the main thing of what it means to be a follower of God, that they only talk about circumcision. And what they're doing in a subtle way is they're leading people away from Jesus to be all about this. It's like, what's your good news? It's that we're circumcised or not circumcised. It's like you're leading people away from who Jesus is and what He's done into this very fleshly thing that we accomplish or don't accomplish. And this has actually always been the story in the Bible. Let me recount to you the Bible in a, in a few minutes. We believe that God is a God who creates everything. So God creates man. He gives man and woman value, meaning, and purpose. He creates them for life and to enjoy him. And we have this fake news, CNN, Fox News type thing that slithers onto the scene. I felt I had to put both American parties in together because I'm not quite sure what else to do. But this fake news comes and we believe the fake news. That that God made us for this, but we actually have to do something to earn his favor. That God made us, but we need to perform for him like a monkey. And if at the end of the day, we've clapped enough times and danced in the right way, then God will accept us. And that actually when we ate of the fruit of the tree that God said, don't eat of this, it wasn't about that there was poison in the fruit. It meant that there was poison in the heart, that we wanted to go after something and live a different way than God actually made us for. So God creates, we believe the fake news, we eat the fruit, and we die in every way. Socially, emotionally, physically, spiritually, even eternally, in that moment, humanity inside of our parents, we die. And we've been trying to get back to that place before the fruit ever since. Ever since the story goes on, the people of God have have multiplied in the land of Egypt. The story would take too long for me to tell you how they got there, but essentially, the people of God are well over a million at least, maybe up to three million people, and they're enslaved inside of Egypt and God says, I've heard your cry. I'm gonna rescue you, bring you out of the oppression that you're living under. I'm gonna deliver you and bring you into freedom. And they get that. God rescues them through putting plagues on the Egyptians. God splits open the Red Sea, like crazy miracles. You're like, ah, that's not scientifically possible. I'm like, I know it's not, but it happens. And these people have seen God overcome this group of people for them. They get to the other side. Their leader goes up on a mountain, Moses, to receive some commandments from God. They're worried about him because he's been gone for 40 days. And they're like, ah, what do we do? And they're like, well, let's put all our earrings together, melt them, we'll fix a calf, and we'll start to worship that calf, this golden calf, and say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Like, we are crazy. We're crazy people. Clearly, this calf did not lead us out of Egypt. We've been following God, but because God can't be accessed for 40 days, we have to build this little mumu. And we need to bow down and dance and worship him and have orgies around it. This is what we do as people. This is our story. And then God has mercy on them and actually comes back to them and leads them into his, his land. And then God saves. God saves his people through the cross and resurrection Ultimately that's what the exodus was pointing to. Being liberated out of slavery was pointing to one day a savior coming to liberate us from the curse that we've been living under ever since we as humanity ate that fruit. And so Jesus dies on a cross for you and I. Because we we at our core are what theologically we would call sinners. Now some of you might not like that term. And that's okay. Again, we're gonna hear a lot of things from scripture that we don't like, but we have to wrestle through, is this true or not? What it means to sin is actually to not be perfect. And I don't meet very many people that claim to be perfect. And not only are we imperfect in who we are, but we do imperfect things or we don't do the things that we should actually do. And so Jesus comes and he dies in our place. He says, I know you have all the spiritual debt, and I'm gonna to go to the cross for you on your behalf and I'll take your debt and I'll give you my freedom. I'm giving you an exodus out of spiritual slavery. And then he rises from the dead. And this is what we celebrate as the people of God every day, not just on Easter, is that we have a living God. He's not dead. You can't go visit Jesus's tomb and like touch his bones or something. He's alive. He's active. He's moving. And he says that he's coming back to get his people So there's this great news that's spreading all throughout the island of Crete, all the way to Montreal. And yet at Crete in this time, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that there's this living God, but here's the big deal. We all got to get circumcised. It's like pulling people away from Jesus back to circumcision so that God will love us. Our hearts constantly want to create religious impulses. Because at the end of the day, we want to get a little bit of credit. The Lord says, why would I ever let you into my presence? Because I circumcised myself. He's like, yeah, that must have been painful. Come on in. That's not it. That's not it. Why would the Lord ever allow for himself to be in relationship with you? Why would the holy allow for himself to be in relationship with the unholy? And the only answer we can give is because Jesus, through his death, has made me holy. That's it. I've got nothing to bring. I have a whole lot of baggage. I have a whole lot of junk. I have a whole lot of brokenness. I have a whole lot of stuff that I don't think God would ever really want in his kingdom. And he is transforming people like me and like you to look just like his son, Jesus. This is the good news. This is why we can't let false teachers say circumcision or Obey this law or obey this law. Or if you don't do this and you do this, then God will let you into his heaven and new creation and all that. Because that's bogus. It takes the whole ship and steers it away from the glory of God and puts it to another glory, namely ourselves. Because we concocted it, we created it. So Paul is saying, we need elders, we need leaders that will speak louder. That's why they give me a microphone so that I can speak louder, right, than than anyone else that we want to hear from the Lord, not from you. And and I don't mean you like you have bad things to say, but we don't want to hear the empty philosophy. We don't want to hear the the deceitfulness. We don't want to hear the things that are going to lead us astray from from Jesus. It's like we plug our ears knowing that there's lots of sirens and we just say, la, 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 with our eyes fixed on Jesus and so one of the reasons elders needed to be there is because this type of garbage was happening on the island of Crete it doesn't take long where good teaching good work is happening for false teachers to show up because now they have a crowd now they have an audience and they can say things that sound mostly good but there's a difference and it's like no 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 we can have Jesus and circumcision Like both, God will look at both those things and be like, on account of both of these. It's kind of the idea of penance, right? That, like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but now I'm gonna go pray, you know, this many times in this many ways, and God will forgive me based on my work. No, God forgives you only based on the work of Jesus. You don't have to go and do any of that stuff, you're free you're free. Repentance is not this heavy burden. Repentance is actually taking the burden of sin and religion that we've been under and flinging it off and being able to walk straight for the first time and walking to Jesus, turning back to him. This is why elders are so important, false teachers. The second reason is because of the role of an elder. What's an elder supposed to do? I know that I read an article recently that PowerPoint, things up on a screen, actually makes us dumber. I'm choosing my words carefully. Uh, Actually makes us dumber. Like, you'll remember less by looking at the screen and me just reading these things to you. But I felt like I had to put them on the screen because some of you would be like, I really wish that that list was up there. So that was for you, whoever you are. Here's the role of an elder. And this is compiled answers from the New Testament, that elders are supposed to lead and steward and discipline and care for the church. Some of you think that discipline is like bad news. Some of you think, like some of you have gotten called into elders' meetings before. Ooh, you know, going to the elder's office. Like that's not it. Discipline is good news. Did you know that God disciplines all his kids? Hebrews chapter 12, book in the New Testament tells us that a parent who doesn't discipline their child hates them. If God's not disciplining you, like changing you from who you are into who he wants you to be, then he hates you. So discipline is actually good news. Discipline is is formative and corrective. We're disciplined all the time within the church, mostly with formative But at times we have to be corrective. Why? Not because I feel like being harsh. Because I want for you to see and treasure Jesus more than the thing that you're pursuing. Like we love you. Let me say this on behalf of the elders of Church 21. We love you. We pray for you. We weep over you. We've pursued you. Some of you are no longer here because you didn't like us pursuing you. And we're gonna keep pursuing you because we want you to see Jesus more as better than the thing that you're running after. This is part of our our calling from the Lord. This is why being an elder is not an easy thing. It's not this thing like, oh, I wanna be an elder. It's like, "I I don't think you do. In fact, if you can choose something other than being an elder, do it, really. This will keep you up a lot. Secondly, role of an elder is to pray for the church. Praying all the time. You're like, man, I don't have a very good prayer life and maybe I just pray for myself. It's like, man, when elders are struggling to pray, it means we're forgetting about the church the people we're supposed to be praying for. Pray for the sick. If you are sick, we are supposed to be praying for you. If you're sick and you don't let us know that you're sick, we don't have like a little fairy that flies in and lands on my pillow every morning and it's like, Sick report, Dwight. Yeah, I've been waiting, you know. We have to hear from you. If you're sick and you're not getting better, we want to be fasting and praying for you. This is part of our job. Let us do our job given to us by God for you. Let us serve you. Let us be like the scum of the earth to you. That's what Paul says. He's like, I'm the scum of the earth. People don't view me up here. And Paul doesn't view himself up here. Paul views himself as a servant of servant. And as an elder, it's like, this is where I view myself. I'm, I'm here to serve you. Sent by God to serve you. Elders are supposed to study, preach, and teach the Bible correctly. Man, the amount of times that I say, now sometimes I say dumb things. And you're like, that was dumb. I'm like, yes, you are right. That was dumb. But sometimes we say hard things and you're like, that was the worst sermon I've ever heard, you know, da, da, da. I'm like, yeah, but I basically just read the Bible. Like, that wasn't my thing. I completely ripped that off from God. It's like, have you taken it up with him? It's like, no, he wasn't available. I'm like, he is available. Well, tell me about your prayer life because he's certainly available, right? Don't email me, email him. If he doesn't get back to you, then email me, right? But the elders are supposed to study, preach, and teach the Bible correctly, and then listen, then listen to where the church actually is at. We don't believe this, we don't know this. Then we have to come alongside you and help you believe it or help you see it. And sometimes you don't see it right away. And sometimes we see it incorrectly and we have to change our view, right? This is, this is us as a church. And so often we look at the church as a commodity. We're consumers, we show up at this church We hear the product of the sermon. We hear the music. We uh, experience the greeting and we say, I like this church. I don't like this church. I like the sermon. I don't like the sermon. I'm saying I'm not ever coming back. We do that, but the church is actually a family. Church is a family. And what we're not gonna do at the end, uh, so the elders, uh, Doug and Angie, they brought their two kids, Olivia and Sonny, and we have four kids. At the end of our time together, when they go home, we're like, so which family do you wanna choose? Like, what do you mean? Like, no, no, whose food did you like better? Whose cooking did you like better? Whose snacks did you like better? And we're going to let you be consumers of family. And if you like Doug and Angie, you're all dual citizens. so You guys can just head back to Maine and, you know, be fine. And you're like, oh, that's silly. That's dumb. But that's often the way that we treat the church. That we don't stick around for hard things. When something gets hard, we just bail. And I would encourage you not to just bail. When things get hard, it's like, oh, maybe something good is actually going to happen. Following Jesus is not all rainbows, unicorns, and candy. In fact, oftentimes it's really, really hard. And learning to be like him oftentimes feels like suffering because it feels like part of us is dying and it kind of actually is. The old us is dying and falling away and that's painful. Role of an elder is to protect from false teachers. I already went over that. But there have been times, so you know, that I have had dinner with people who have told me what they're gonna do inside of our church. And they're like, no, we're gonna, we're gonna get involved in this and we're gonna teach this. I'm like, you're not ever welcome into our church to do that. Yeah, but we're going, I'm like, no, you're not. And this is when in my mind, I think I'm six, seven, right? The spirit of God rushes upon me and like, ah, even though no muscles pop or anything. Uh, but this is where I because of the spirit of God, get big because of the church. Because I will not allow for false teachers. Now, I'm not saying people are struggling to understand what's true and not true, but people who have a clear agenda that I'm gonna get involved in this church to steer the church away from Jesus. Those are people I will fight. Not with fisticuffs, but with the word of God and we will not let them harm you. You have to know this about us as elders. We will not let them harm you. Role of elder is to live exemplary lives, to be an example. I'll talk about that in just a second. And lastly, the role of an elder is to give account to God for the church. One day, one day, I am gonna stand with the elders in our church in front of Jesus, And he's gonna say, I stewarded these people to you for this time. What did you do with them? Why did you do it? And I don't think that's gonna be like a moment to push our faces into shame or like Jesus, just before he brings us into his kingdom, he's like hitting us with a guilt stick or something. But like we have to give an account because this church is not ours. It's not mine, it's his. This is why we take being an elder very seriously. This is why we take the Bible very seriously. because we have to give an account. So a way to sum up the role of an elder is that we care. We care for the church, we lead the church, we feed the church, and we protect the church. This is the role of an elder. Now, what kind of people do we want doing this job? What kind of people do we want doing this? this job because so often inside of churches, we can easily see a church is like a business. So therefore a leader who functions well inside of a business, a CEO, someone who understands organizations and strategy, they'd be a great elder, but not necessarily because God doesn't start with your competency, what you can do. God starts with your character so, we always look, as we're looking at elders, we're looking at the character first, then the conviction, and lastly, the competency. And someone with character, and someone with deep convictions about who God is and what He's done, you know, I don't actually really care all that much about the competencies. We can teach things, we can work with them. But it's these first two that we can't, it's harder to teach character and, and conviction. And yet this is what the Lord actually looks for. So let me read to you Titus 1, 6 through 9. If anyone is above reproach, a husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination... For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He is not to be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for game, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we're going to move pretty quickly through this list because I think it's self-explanatory. But this should be what the elders look like in this church and those who would desire to be an elder. Um, Also, there there are three different lists in the New Testament, one in the book of 1 Timothy, Titus chapter 1, and then 1 Peter as well. All of them are, are very similar. There's no one list that's against the other one. I think that the reason why the lists are a bit different is because of contextualized needs, which makes a lot of sense. So there are five major things that I just want to bring to the surface. Number one is that an elder is supposed to be above reproach. Above reproach, this is kind of the catch-all term that every other thing falls into, but this means that they're blameless. Not perfect, but blameless. That there's no accusations that are underneath the surface. That their, their public life matches their private life. Now, they might be a little more grumpy at 5 a.m. without a lot of sleep, but like give them a coffee, a little bit of time, right? And they come around. So this isn't perfect, but it's blameless. In fact, being an elder should mean that it's, it's hard to say the most humble because then you're really prideful. But they should be people who are pursuing humility, who are open about their faults, who are open about the mistakes that they made, that are open about if we're wrong in a situation even with you, it's like, oh, I didn't understand that. I'm so sorry that I didn't ask that question first before I made this assumption. Right? There should be humility oozing from the elders, To be above reproach means that you can't really accuse them of anything in terms of biblical standards. The second one is that they would be a one-woman man, a one-woman man. Now, if you're single, this doesn't mean you can't be an elder. You can be an elder. Uh, What this is protecting against is from people that have many wives, right? It's like, I would love to be an elder, and I brought my seven wives with me. It's like, ah... one woman, man. Um, let's work this through. How did you end up in that point? And this was real in that day. That that what Paul was pushing for was for man to be married to one woman. And so, if married, if you are married, the requirement is that you'd be faithful and devoted to your wife. That there's no mistress, emotionally or physically. And this is such a tragic thing inside of ministry. There's so many, so many. I know of several guys who have lost their ministry, not because of physical affairs, but emotional affairs that they've had. And so we, we keep a, a tight ship. We, we know of what's going on within our elder team that we want to make sure that there's no mistress for any one of our, our elders. The, the marriage of an, of an elder... A spouse should be in one that's worthy of imitating. Should be one that when you say, what, what would my marriage look like? Ah, that, that's what I would love it to work, look like. Now, this brings up a question which I will address. Uh, I wanna do it rather quickly. A whole sermon could be given to this, but uh, the question comes up around this text, well, can a woman be an elder? Is that, is that allowed? Because you're just talking about Guys, up to this point, could a woman be an elder? I would say this, that God's structure is is this. God's structure is gender equality, yet role distinction. And I know that some of you are going to hear what I'm about to say and be like, oh, I totally disagree with it. And I, and I want for you to remember what it said at the beginning. It doesn't mean that we all started by agreeing with all these things. That If we're submitting to the word of God, then we actually have to study the word of God and know what he's saying and lose our preferences for what we want and get under his preferences. So this is what we believe that there's gender equality that men and women completely, absolutely equal in every regard. There's no way that a woman is better than a man or man is better than a woman. And we have stereotypes around that but like that's just not, that's not there in scripture. That there's complete equality. But what also is in scripture is that there's a role distinction. There's a role distinction. And this role distinction is true in the home and the church. That if a man can't lead his home, if an elder can't lead his home, he should never lead in the church. You get qualified to lead in the church because of how you're leading in your home. So we believe equal with different roles. And here's why. Creation accounts, Genesis God created Adam and then he created Eve. We, we believe in that. You might think that's silly and that's okay. We're glad you're here and we'd love to talk to you more about that later on. We believe that God actually said to Adam, this is the command before Eve was created. This is the command that you're not to eat of the fruit of this tree. So you are responsible to lead your family in believing and obeying who we are. And Adam in the garden abdicated his responsibility by being silent. He allowed for his wife to be oppressed by this fake news that had come onto the scene. He should have acted, but he didn't. He let her eat. And I would imagine kind of watching, wondering what's gonna happen. Is she gonna die? Because I don't wanna die. And when she didn't die, she gave some to him. Who was right with her, and he ate. And it was that their eyes were open in that moment. They understood the things they were doing that, that weren't good. The woman was oppressed, and he just watched. And you realize that, that women are most oppressed when men are chauvinistic or passive. Women are most oppressed when men are chauvinistic or passive. And so, real quick, unless you want to be here for two hours, which you can be, we got the room for a while. Uh, Paul in the New Testament teach this, that there's equality of men and women in all realms. All should lead. We need men and women leaders in all realms. But Paul in the New Testament teach that the role of elder, only the role of elder, is for called and qualified. Hear that, called and qualified men. Not all men, but a few. This limits the number way down. And I know it sounds crazy to our culture. I'm the one who's had to think about this all week. Like, I'm gonna say this. This is what Montreal is. You know, this is the society we live in. Like, this just sounds crazy. But you know what? It was just as crazy to the first century hearers as well. Because Ephesus, uh, Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. We get another list in the book of Timothy about what elders are supposed to be. Elders, uh, Ephesus was completely led by women. Artemis, the temple of Artemis, was led by a high priestess and young virgins. They were overseeing everything that that took place. So in that city, men were not leaders at all. It was all females that were leading things forward. And so now there's a new belief. There's a new gospel, better news, and it's centered on this God-man, Jesus. And this new movement is being led by men And women. Jesus' closest followers were men and women. Paul had men and women that were leading alongside of him. And Paul is saying, for this one office, for this one office, this is for called and qualified men. Now, women, you're encouraged to participate in every area of leadership. This is uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable text for, for our society could be uncomfortable for you this morning. And I would say, if that's you, don't bail out. Wrestle with the text. Read through the text. Read through the commentaries that would affirm on either side of this. Talk with your pastors. Talk with us around this. Because ultimately what we're trying to do is we're not trying to lead us into the church where I get control, right? I don't don't want control. I wanna let go of that control and I wanna follow Jesus. Jesus. And if I believe that Jesus was saying something different in his word, that's what we would do, even if I disagreed with it. It's like, Lord, you got to change my heart around that. So I would say on this, on this very cultural sticky issue that we need to be people of the word and that we submit to what God says here. And also, if you come to the understanding that, you know what, I don't actually believe that, it's not a divisive issue or it doesn't have to be a divisive issue. So I'd invite further conversation in this. The third thing, I'm gonna get back to the text. Third thing is that elders should not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkards, violent, greedy for gain. Doesn't that sound like a fun person to have coffee with? Right, oh good, Elder Jordan's drunk again. Like neat, he's throwing coffee at me because I didn't pray enough last week. Like I'm so blessed by meeting with you, right? You wouldn't wanna meet with someone like that. And these are all results of pursuing self. When I have an agenda and you're not meeting my agenda, I'm going to get angry with you. I'm going to have to medicate myself at night or the morning because you're not doing what I want you to do as the church. We don't want those type of leaders. Fourth thing, they must be hospitable, lovers of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So elders are are those who have dynamic relationships with Jesus. And when we don't, we're pushing each other on that. Why? Why? Because our relationship with the Lord is what actually spills out into the rest of the church. There's this thing that, I mean, I don't know how true it is, but it's that the spiritual maturity level of a church never passes that of the elders. And that might be true. Because if we've never shepherded our own hearts over these mountains, then how could we ever, ever lead the church over them as well? And so if elders aren't willing to engage with the Lord on really hard things and grow in those things. And most likely the church isn't going to be challenged and grown in those either. So you need to push us. You need to ask us, how are you growing in godliness, elder, pastor, bishop? How are you doing this? And the last thing is that they must hold firm to the word to instruct and rebuke. For example, if you want to meet and talk about any of this sermon, do you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna open up the Bible and we're gonna look at the Bible together. Elders need to know their, their Bibles because this is how God speaks. This is how God confronts. This is how God medicates. This is how God calms. God speaks through his word, through his spirit, through his people. So the last thing, the last reason why Paul would tell Titus to do this thing is that there needed to be a plurality of elders We don't talk about just one elder. We talk about elders. We always need to have elders. And there's four quick reasons why. One, elders have blind spots. You have blind spots too, don't you? You're like, no, that's because no one's loved you enough to tell you about them. You have blind spots. Ask your friend, you know, if you really care about me, tell me my blind spots. Peter had a blind spot. The apostle Peter and Paul called him out on it in the book of Galatians. Imagine calling the apostle Peter, the one that Jesus said on your confession, I will build my church. Then like former Christian killer shows up. He's like, hey, Peter, come here. Right, that's, that's crazy. But yeah, this is why we need a plurality because we all have blind spots. Secondly, we have different gifts. Brian Alton is an elder. I'm an elder. Brian is wired much differently than I am. He is is a shepherd. I am learning to be a shepherd, right? I like starting new things. Uh, He really loves being with people in everything. We are wired so differently. So it would be a disservice to the church. In fact, if it was all Dwight's, I don't know if this church would be around anymore because I would have wanted to start so many new projects that the church would have just been burned out. It's taking shepherds on our team to be like, we need to slow down. You care about people and see if they can actually handle your craziness. I'm like, oh yeah, good idea, good idea, right? I'm talked down rather easily. Uh, Third thing is that the expansion of the gospel is going to need multiple leaders in multiple places, So you need to have elders that are being developed so that when you want to start a new thing in the West Island, we have elders to send out. When we want to start a new thing in the South Shore, we can send these elders out. When they want to move to a new place to start a new job, we can send them out. So that we're sending elders, elder qualified men to these new places. And the last reason why we need a plurality is one day we're going to die. One day I'm going to die. And this church is not all about me. It's not me that's holding this church up and we need for the church to keep going and Jesus is gonna keep his church going. And if one guy, one person, one couple tries to lead the church, they will die. In fact, churches that only have one pastor typically can't grow beyond 50 people because sociologically, a sane person can't care for more than 50 people. And that's like stretching the limits. Most people are like 25 to 30 people. We need plurality. The bonus reason is that elders need to support one another because being an elder is tough work. These past two weeks have been horrible. I'll just be very open. They've been horrible. Really, really hard two weeks. And it's had to do with external reasons, but some internal reasons as well because being an elder is tough. When you're called to help lead people into maturity in Christ, it means that you're called into the suckiest moments where they hate the fact that you're there, where they don't love that you're speaking against what they wanna do. And yet, those are the moments that we lean into our calling. It's like, but we're here to remind you of these things because this is what is most true, even though you feel this. You see, often people listen, but often people do what they want. Disregard shepherding. Here's kind of how I want to end, and then we'll respond. That God wants to care for you through visible, spirit filled shepherds. God wants to care for you through visible, spirit filled shepherds. I will say, like, I will, I have a Bible here. I can even do it. Like, I raise my right hand, do that whole thing, but I won't because that seems weird. Um, we are not interested in controlling you. We as the elders are not interested in controlling you. We're not interested in, in putting you as like a notch in our church belt. Like that is not what we are longing to do. We wanna help you do what is best and what the Lord actually has for you. We pray for you. We fight for you. Sometimes we fight with you. We plead with you. We weep over you. We chase you. Why? Because we want for you to live as Jesus wants. We want for you to learn how to submit your life and your desires and your feelings, which change based on what type of food you ate last night. Right? It's the same for us too. We want to we be put underneath the lordship of who Jesus is. Elders are given to the church as a gift to you. You might be like, well... I wish I had different elders. I'm like, I'm sorry. But I'm not sorry because we are the gifts. We are the gift from God to you to help you grow in maturity. And you are the gift given to us to help us grow in maturity. And we are not a hierarchy, we are servants. Elders are servants. If you ever see someone who's an elder or a pastor, acting like they are the ones to be served in everything, please just ask a question. Do you think that everyone here is to serve you? Or that you're here to serve everyone? So let, let's respond. The The proper response is like, okay, who's called to be an elder this morning? But I don't think that's the right response for us as a church. So there are a few questions are you known and cared for by Jesus? Do you let Jesus care for you? Do you let him care about those, the recesses and parts of your heart that you don't want anyone to really know about? Those are actually the parts that Jesus wants to care for you in. And he wants for you to invite others into that. He wants for you maybe to meet with me or to meet with Brian Stegner or Brian Alton. We try and keep, as many Brians on our elder team to make it easy for you, right? But maybe it's time to meet and say, hey, there are these things in my life that that I think are just off and, and I don't feel cared for in these areas. And I think that the Lord wants for you to learn to care for me in these areas. That's that's humiliating, isn't it? It's humbling when you have to say, I don't know how to do it anymore. And you know what? The Lord has actually put this gift of leaders there for you to walk with you in this. You're not alone. Are you led by Jesus? Do you let him lead you? Or do you put your vision out on a whiteboard and you say, that's where we're going. Jesus, take the wheel, but if you don't go that way, I'm gonna pull it back. Will you let the elders of the church be a part of that leading? Would you come to us and say, hey, I'm, I'm discerning this Maybe ministry or move or thing I'd like to do. Could you guys pray about that together? And would you ask me good questions about that? This is what we're supposed to do. And we'd love to know this stuff. Are you being fed by Jesus? And do you actually receive his feeding? Or do you come on a Sunday morning and you leave with a list of things you disagree with rather than, Jesus, how am I hearing from you about who you are? Jesus, I want to worship you. Do you examine the food that you're being offered so much so that you never actually put it into your mouth? Do you receive preaching and teaching that maybe you disagree with because maybe you're wrong? And maybe I'm wrong, but maybe you're wrong. And do you receive that and say, this might be good news for me, so I'm just going to pop it inside of my mouth, I'm going to let it sit there for a while, and I'm going to examine it. And if I find out it's true, I'm gonna chew it and swallow it. And this is what I'm gonna get behind. And are you protected by Jesus? You have an enemy. We've been talking about him throughout the paranormal series. He wants to destroy you. He wants to wipe you out. He wants to lie to you. He wants to tell you all kinds of things that are not true about who you are and what God has done. And some of you are just letting him attack you. And you have elders that are ready to fight with you. Some of you are letting your sickness overwhelm you. And you just feel hopeless. There's nothing that's going to happen. There's no change. There's no healing. Nothing is going to be different. And yet God actually commands these people to pray for people who are in your circumstance. Would you let us do that? And again, there's no magic fairy. There's no Holy Spirit that, I mean, Holy Spirit does show up, but he doesn't like show up in my room as this thing on the mirror with all the names and all the things that I need to do. No, it comes by people being humble and saying, I am weak and I need help. And then we come alongside you and we we get weak with you because we're weak. And we help build you up in who you are because of what Jesus has done. And did you know that weakness is the only way forward in the kingdom of God? Weakness is the only way forward in the kingdom of God. You discover more and more of how weak you are and dependent you are on God, and that's maturity. That's the opposite of what the world says. The world says you're mature when you're dependent on no one and God says that's immaturity in my kingdom. You're mature when you understand how weak you are and you invite other people into that and you see that you are not sufficient to lead yourself. I am not sufficient to lead myself. None of the elders are. We're clinging to Jesus and we're clinging to the gifts that he's given to us as a church. If you struggle with submission, if you struggle with authority, if you struggle with commitment, I mean, these are the things that our culture and our time struggle with, then you're going to struggle with Jesus a lot. You're going to struggle with Titus a lot. And I would say, I'm so glad that you're entering into this struggle. I'm so glad that you're you're about to do jujitsu with Jesus. And he's going to win. He's going to win. And you can tap. Tapping is so much better because then you can walk with him. But he is such a good God that he's not just gonna let you run off. He's gonna pursue you and make you deal with the truth of his word because he wants you to see him as sufficient for you. And this city needs him as sufficient for the city. So let me, let me pray for us. Um, God, in preparing this sermon all week, you just know how weird it was for my mind uh, and for my heart. And you encouraged me all week that even in my in my unbelief and my doubts and my fears and in my insecurities, I can submit to you and I don't have to have all the right answers right away. I, I can sit with you and know that you are a good shepherd and a good God. And you're not gonna leave me, you're not gonna forsake me and you're gonna walk with me. And I pray that for our church, that as we're working through the, the letter to Titus about church structure, that you would bring clarity to us, that you would give us areas that maybe we've been off before, or maybe we haven't, maybe we just full-on agree. And this is the way that we need to do things. And, but Lord, ultimately it's your church and we wanna get under your vision, your view, your structure for your church. And so would you help us to submit to you? You know that my heart likes to fight you. You know that I have a hard time tapping. Would you help me to tap out on the issues that you have to say to me through this text? Would you help us as a church to learn how to tap out and say, okay, all right, I'll, I'll learn how to live under this new truth. And for those who are here who have been struggling their entire lives, trying to be the ruler and authority in their life, that this morning they might tap out to you, Jesus that they might say, I can't lead my life anymore. I need to follow you and your death on the cross was sufficient for me and your resurrection was for me and I can have new life in you and I can, I can be incorporated into your structure. I'm, I'm a building block because of that and that you would bring those people hope. Lord, our, our city needs a church that's not divided, our city needs a church that's united around you. I pray for the different local churches downtown that we would learn how, how to work together well, even as we experience issues that we don't fully agree on, that we would learn how to be in unity around you, King Jesus, and around your good news that you are alive and that you want to change this city for your glory. So we love you. Help, you. help us to respond this morning to the fact that you are, are here you are ministering, and that you love us. We need you. Amen.